As the body of Kathy Lorena lay in the built-on addition of the no-tech home, its occupants stood still in shock. They knew how mean and sadistic the matriarch was, but never thought that she could push her punishment so far that one would actually die. Shelly's wheels in her head started spinning a million miles a minute. How was she going to explain this? Could she trust everyone involved? No one could ever know the truth about what happened that warm summer night in July because Shelly wasn't going down for Kathy's death. Even if that meant throwing one of the children under the bus. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your host and librarian, Ashley. Tonight we continue our journey in the Shelley Notech case. This is a case that scratches the psychological itch we true crime nerds have. And the deeper we go, the stronger the urge to scratch. How could a woman become so powerful in her own home that those around her feared partaking in their own simple human rights? None of those who lived in the home were allowed to go to the restroom or shower without her consent. And if the mood struck her, no one could eat until she said so. Dave Notek stayed working at a job far enough from home that he could only come home on the weekends, preferring to stay away from what Shelley was doing behind his back. And the children were left seeing the outcome as their mother stayed blinded by her own fury and entertainment. Warning. This episode depicts graphic detail of murder, abuse, adult situation, and language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen for you or with you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Last week, I introduced you all to Shelly Notet, and we walked through her younger years and into her teenage years where she became ruthless and into her adult years where she began birthing children that were her playthings when it came to her very sadistic entertainment. And eventually, she ended up bringing in Kathy Loreno into her home. Kathy was her hairdresser first and best friend second. And as soon as Kathy moved in, Shelly started to take things away from her. Her possessions started being removed as punishment because she didn't do what Shelly wanted her to do. And once there was nothing left of that to take, then Shelly was chipping away at Kathy's personality and her self-esteem. And eventually, Kathy was a ghost of who moved into the no-tech home five years prior. She had lost over 100 pounds. 
her teeth had rotted from her head and Shelly had cut off her beautiful hair, which was what she was known for. And as a hairdresser, you know, they always look the best. And Shelly took that all away because she could, you know, she fed her best friend spoiled food out of the refrigerator because she could. The children watched because they were in shock that another adult would allow something like this to happen to themselves. But for Kathy, it was almost as if she was those children's saving grace. Because as long as Shelly's attention was on Kathy, she wasn't abusing the kids. And as sad as that is to say, there's no telling who could have been the one to pass away had Kathy never moved into the no-tech home. So I'm going to kick it off tonight where we are at the no-tech home. Kathy had just passed away in the add-on addition to the no-tech home and Dave and Shane are at home. Dave quickly calls Nikki's place of employment and thankfully catching Shelly before she could pull out of the parking lot. And Shelly was coaxed back in to take the phone call. And the girls said that they can remember seeing their mother turn as white as a ghost. The news that her best friend was dead really shocked her. And I don't know why. Because I'm not really sure if she really honestly thought what she was doing to Kathy was helping her. You know, that was her excuse to Dave and to the children. She wasn't going to get any better unless Shelly could help Kathy. And that was always the excuse. That's why she abused her the way she did. So it's almost like she didn't see it coming, but the kids did. Nikki and Shane were old enough to know what was going on, and they both knew that if Kathy didn't get out, she was going to die. So when Shelly gets back home with Nikki, Sammy, and Tori, her daughters, they all three go upstairs with Shane, who was her nephew, and Dave and Shelly are downstairs arguing about what they are going to do with Kathy's body. They couldn't take her to the hospital. They couldn't drop her off because of her condition. One look at her and you would know that she was being abused. And if anybody knew that she was living with the Notex, then it would come back on Shelly and Dave. And Shelly wasn't about to go down for that. She didn't care. But she was not going down for killing Kathy. Shane's upstairs with the girls and he is telling them about what he had just witnessed. And Sammy, the middle child, was closest with Kathy. And when she heard that Kathy was really dead, she lost She lost her composure. She could not be consoled by any of the other children. Eventually, Shelly hears this and she goes upstairs and she comforts her middle child. And Shelly herself even begins to shed tears for her best friend. But I'm not sure if she was genuine in that moment, or maybe that's the only time she was genuine. I, maybe that's what it is. Maybe every other time it's this facade that she puts on, but in this moment, she let herself feel the emotions that came with the loss of her friend Kathy. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's the only time we get to see the real Shelly Notech. In the end, Dave and Shelly decided that they were going to put all the kids in a hotel room for the night and they were going to get rid of Kathy's body. So Shane, Nikki, Sammy, and Tori, they all go to a motel room and they think of it as a little mini vacation. 
they go swimming in the pool and they enjoy the freedom of going to the restroom and taking a shower and all of those little things that they did not get at home. Now back home, Dave is building his own homemade crematorium. He has started to put together a fire pit out in the back and it's built with sheet metal and tin and everything he can think of that would help keep the heat in. Because, well, you know what? I don't even know how he knows this, but he knows he needs to keep it hot in order for the body to completely incinerate. So here he is out back. He's building this crematorium in their backyard. While Shelly is inside figuring out where she had hid all of Kathy's things in the house. She got rid of everything. If she took it away from Kathy at any point in the five years, it it was going to be taken care of. And so her and Dave lower Kathy into this homemade crematorium. And then she loads up Kathy's belongings on top of her as Dave is loading up tires and wood. And then he douses the whole thing in diesel fuel and sets it on fire. I'm no expert in how to cremate a person. And honestly, I really don't know if I want to know. But Dave did. He knew just enough to know that the temperature had to be high in order for things to occur. He babysat burning Kathy's body for five hours. In that five hours, he continued to add things to the fire to keep it burning and keep it hot. The metal that he had constructed it with helped hold that heat in instead of letting it dissipate. And then by the morning, Kathy Loreno had no traces of ever living in the no-tech home. Dave ends up shoveling up the ashes and charred remains that were in that burn pile into some buckets, and he heads out to the Pacific Ocean. Shelly goes to the motel, and she picks up the kids. And when they get home, Nikki says she can never forget the smell that it smelled like when they pulled up to their house. It was just this disgusting, burning gas oil smell from the diesel and the tires. And they knew Kathy was gone. Nikki knew. So Dave drives the bucket of charred remains up to the coast and he dumps the ashes into the deep dark ocean. He knew the moment that tide turned over and went back out that no one would ever find Kathy Loreno. Back of the house, Shelly tells Nikki and Shane to grab a bucket and to go pick out around the burn pit. Dave had gone out back according to Shelly, and burned some insulation, and they needed to get it all picked up out of the yard. So as they're doing this, Dave is carrying this weight on his shoulders as he knows why Kathy died, yet he still stands behind his wife. Mm, I don't know. This is a little hard for me because Dave is his own person, and Five days out of the week, he doesn't even live in the same house of his wife. How could he not detach himself away from that situation long enough to say, this is not right. Something needs to be done. She's crazy. She's killed somebody. We can't. How? What is she doing to our kids? But that's not how this goes. Dave stands up for his wife. 
and he covers up Kathy's death. Now, Shelly needed a story, and that's what Shelly was good at. She was good at making up lies, and so she took on this task. And the very first story, I guess, that would come out of Shelly is she tried out telling the kids that Kathy committed suicide. Now, Shane was there. Shane saw what happened. Suicide didn't work. So she came up with something else. And then Dave heads off to work. And when he comes back the next weekend, he's got his hands on a backhoe. And he's going to go out to the back of the, the land that the Notex live on. And he ends up tearing up up to two feet in some places around the burn pit throughout the middle. And disposes of that dirt. There is zero traces of her in that home anymore. None. Zero. Zilch. They've obliterated any evidence that she was ever there. So Shelly is conjuring up this story. And she goes back to Kathy's boyfriend. Quote unquote. Rocky. Y'all remember us talking about Rocky last week. There was some kind of photograph of Kathy standing next to this semi and Shelly sold it to Kathy's family as she had this boyfriend who was a long haul truck driver. Now that's where Shelly is coming back from. She knows just how to spin this story so that nobody ever really questions what happens to Kathy. Shelly starts out with Kathy and Rocky were in love. And they loved each other so much they could no longer stay apart. And so Kathy chose to leave with Rocky and they went on to go start their own life. And then Shelly starts to gaslight the children. She goes, she'll, she'll ask the kids things like, you remember my friend Rocky? Or remember how interested Rocky was in Kathy? Or... You you all liked him. You all have to remember him. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, now I need you all to understand that Kathy didn't die. Kathy went off with Rocky. Didn't you know that? Haven't you been listening? Shane knew better. And Shane spoke out. And he says, but she didn't. And he knew better. He knew better than to call Shelly out on her bullshit. But he did it anyways. And... Shelly quickly snapped back at him. You don't know that, Shane. Well, Shane does know that. He watched her die. But he was not about to get into an argument with Shelly over it. So that's how the story goes. Kathy fell in love with Rocky. And they loved each other so much that they chose to travel the world in his semi-truck trailer. And begin their own life. Kathy Loreno fell in love and ran away. Now it was Nikki's turn to be part of the story. You know, Shelly had this blurry picture of Kathy next to Rocky's truck, but Shelly needed love letters to really just sell the story. So she thought. So Shelly sat Nikki down and Nikki was to practice over and over and over how to sign Kathy's name. And Shelly began praising Nikki in her efforts to forge Kathy's handwriting. And she'd be like, you almost got it. Just one more time. You know, just one more time. 
And when she finally got it, Shelly had a love note from Kathy to Rocky. And then Shelly decided to send one of these letters to Kathy's mother. So she had Nikki write it. Nikki put it in the envelope. Nikki sealed it. Nikki addressed it. You see where I'm going here? Shelly never touched anything when it partook in this part of her story. Okay, when Dave went back to work, he had to drive all the way to Canada and mail this letter to Kathy's mom. And then Shelly got freaked out. Something just didn't sit right with her. And so she got a hold of Dave and she told him to go get that letter before Kathy's mom could. So now Dave had to drive all the way out to Kathy's parents' house and intercept this letter before Kathy's mom could have it. She had put her eldest daughter through days of mimicking Kathy's handwriting. And she had made her husband, who had a very hectic work schedule because he worked a lot of overtime in order to keep Shelly in the home that she was in without her having to lift a finger. So we went through that whole charade. And she ended up getting scared. And they went and pulled the letter from the mailbox before her mother could even get it. So now that she has this story in place, Shelly decides that she needs to have a backup story just in case. And so she thinks about who could be the scapegoat. And Shane had questioned Shelly and her story. And so when she's looking for a backup story, well, she didn't birth Shane. And Shane questioned her. So Shane became her scapegoat. And it wasn't long before Shelly had convinced herself that Shane was going to say something. Shane started to pick up on these little things that Shelly was doing. And he started to realize that Shelly was looking at him. And she was going to pin it all on him. When in actuality, it was her making them all participate in the abuse of Kathy. It wasn't just Shane. It was Dave and it was Nikki. It was Sammy. Tori wasn't old enough at that point. But had she been, Tori would have been involved on that one too. Everybody had a part in the abuse that Kathy suffered in that five years. But Shane was not stupid. He knew where Shelly's brain was and he knew that he was going to be thrown under the bus if Shelly needed to. Shane, he knew. He knew it was just a matter of time before Shelly turned on him. He wasn't dumb. You know, he knew. He didn't feel love coming from Shelly or Dave. He, You know, he was always that outsider. They weren't his parents, his real parents. Regardless of what he called them, that was not his real mother and father. And so, he knew. I mean... You know when somebody is looking at you and you can feel their eyes on you and you just kind of turn to the direction and you catch them? That's how Shane lived his life from the point of Kathy's death. Because Shelly just was like, I could pin this on him. and I could, We could get away with this. And Shane would go down for this. And Shane, he figured out he has two options. He could wait around and see how this turns out. And with her doubting him more and more every day and voicing her concerns on whether Shane is being, is going to protect the family, 
or he could run away. Shelly wanted to see how solid her story was in when it came time to talk with Kathy's loved ones. And so Shelly told Dave that she was going to call Kathy's mom and have her come out to the no-tech home. And Dave was dumbfounded. He was like, what in the hell are you doing? Why would you do that? That's not the smartest thing for you to do. But Shelly is her own operator. And so she's like, I don't care what you think. It's going to happen. And according to Shelly, when she called Kathy's mother, Kathy's mom was abrupt and she had decided she wanted nothing more to do with her daughter and she could care less what Shelly had to say about Kathy because she had washed her hands. She was done. And so Shelly decided that, dang, I'm going to get away with this. I'm going to get away with murder, essentially. And with them in the clear, because, you know, Kathy's mother didn't care what was going on with Kathy, when in actuality, I don't think she picked up the phone and ever called her personally. I can't find out whether or not she really did. But with Shelly, there's no telling. Lord only knows that woman opened her mouth and a lie fell out every time. So, Shelly believes she's in the clear, but she's starting to worry about shame. There's this paranoia that is starting to grow within inside of Shelly. And it gets deeper and darker and bigger as the days go. Because she's so paranoid, she ends up sending the kids to spy on the neighbors just to see if they had heard anything of the going-ons over at the Notex house. And so she sends the kids to different neighbors. And she's like, listen, I want to know what they know and what they're talking about. So the kids do as their mother instruct, and they all come back, and they're like, they're not talking about us. They could, they don't care. And Shelly's like, bullcrap. Yes, they are. And so she made Nikki and Shane go back to the neighbor's house, and she said, I want you in the crawl space. I want you to get under that house and lay there as still and quiet as you can be and listen to everything. So Shane and Nikki go back over to the neighbor's house, but Shane's like, I'm not getting up under there. Mm -mm, no way ain't happening. And Nikki's like, you know, I don't want to piss mom off, so I guess I'll do it. So she crawls up underneath the neighbor's house into their crawl space, and she lays there, and she says that she can see through some of the floorboards in the home, and she can see the people walking inside. She can't really tell what they're saying. She catches a word here and there, but in the end, she's laid there forever and a day, and they had no idea what happened with Kathy. They don't care about the no-techs and what's going on in their life. They have their own chaotic lives to deal with. Of course, murder isn't a part of their life as it is for the no-techs. But in the end, it's still, for them, concerning. So their attention's nowhere near their neighbor's. So when Nikki goes back and she tells Shelly this, Shelly's like, okay, all right. So my story is solid. The neighbors don't know anything. Shane may rat us out. I don't know about that one yet. You know, she's becoming erratic. And as the time goes on, her stability mental-wise is getting worse and worse and worse. And Shane realizes his, op his only option is he needs to run away. Now, as Shane is trying to think of a way out of the no-tech home, Shelly walks around and she'll like randomly do a pop quiz on the kids like, 
Hey, Sandy, where's Kathy? Kathy's with her boyfriend, Rocky, and they're on the, they're in the semi-trailer, and they're, they're falling in love, and they're starting life over, and Shelly's like, mm, work on your deliverance. I don't believe you, you know? She keeps doing this to the kids over and over and over, and really, in the end, all she's doing is freaking herself out more and more and more, which means Shane becomes the target of her more and more and more. So, it's a... <laughs> I wish it could be like a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing, but that's not the way Shelly operates. So now that she's pretty convinced that her story is going to sell that Kathy fell in love and ran away, she needs to convince her husband that Shane is going to say something. And Dave at first doesn't believe it because Shane was standing right there and, you know, he knows Shane's not going to say anything. He's family. He's not going to do that to us. He's not going to hurt us. And Shelly's like, yes, he is. And Dave just doesn't believe her. So the next time Dave comes home on the weekend, Shelly meets him at the front door. And she's holding this bloody pair of panties. And they're Tori's panties. And she tells her husband, Shane's abusing our baby. You have to do something. That night, Dave beats the shit out of Shane. And Shane never even thought to look at Tori in that way. But Shelly made this story. She sold it. So Dave had to believe it, right? I mean, why would his wife lie about something like that? The girls, they see Shane and they ask him what happened. And he says, you know, you know, I got beat up. And eventually he pulls Nikki out to the pole building one afternoon. And he shows her some Polaroids that he had taken of Kathy. And it was proof that Kathy had been murdered at the no-tech home. And he was going to run away and show them to somebody. And he was telling Nikki that he had this. And he's like, this is our way out. This is how we get away from her. Nikki has a self-battle. And she's not really sure how she feels about this. I mean, they've always talked about what they would do if they could get away from their mother. Now the time has come. He's got a way out for all of them. And Nikki goes and tells Shelly about the Polaroids. Shelly goes ahead and calls Dave and she tells him something needs to be done. Shane has these pictures. He's going to tell on us. We're going to be put away in prison for the rest of our lives for the murder of Kathy. You have to do something. And so Shelly, she confronts Shane before Dave can get home. And she's like, what are you going to use those pictures for? Why do you have those pictures? You know, wh what's going on with you, Shane? Why would you do this to us? Why would you tear our family apart? Well, Shane gets another beating. And Shelly stays on her husband's case consistently she's what are you going to do dave what are you going to do with him six months after kathy's death in february of 1995 dave comes home that weekend he goes out and he retrieves his 22 rifle and he heads out to the pole building to where shane is dave walks inside lifts the rifle fires one shot into the back of shane's head the shot rang out and woke Nikki up, but Nikki thought nothing of it and ended up going back to sleep. Shane's blood pulled on the cement, and Dave 
no one could ever believe could murder anyone, walks back to the house, goes in to see his bride, and tells her, I killed Shane. It's over. Now, Shelly can sit back and relax. There's no more paranoia of, is Shane going to tell? There's no more photographs lingering over their head. And not only have they gotten away with Kathy's murder, now they're going to get away with Shane's. And really, honestly, that's what Shelly wanted. And at first, her surprise, she was caught off guard by Dave when he said that. And she's like, why would you do a thing like that? I can imagine his response being like, you keep telling me over and over and over and over. I need to take care of this. I took care of it. And now you want to ask me why I did that? Come on. Really? But I don't know. Dave's such a submissive. He probably just was like, oh, I thought that's what you wanted me to do. In the end, that's what Shelly wanted. She wanted that threat that Shane could go and tell somebody taken away so that she no longer had to worry about her story, her perfect little love story, falling apart. And nobody would go down for Kathy's murder. Now, nobody's going down with Shane's murder. The cement floor was scrubbed with bleach in order to remove the blood and DNA evidence that Shane's body lay there bleeding from the gunshot wound. Shane was also burned in the fire pit, but this time there was no diesel, there was no tires, there was no metal to hold in the heat. And instead, Dave loaded pile after pile after pile of wood on top of his nephew until his body was gone. The threat of being turned in was gone. They were finally free and could move on from this god-awful nightmare. You know, Shelly had no one else to torture. Shane's gone. He can't tell. The girls aren't going to tell. That You know, they're blood. They're our children. They're our daughters. They're not going to say a word. And his wife is happy. And if his wife is happy, he's happy. And he can go back to work and just avoid the fact that he has a crappy marriage to a evil, sadistic woman. And... Two out of three children at home aren't his. So Dave has this very imperfect life, but he's perfectly happy in it. Um, I say perfectly happy. He's content. He's perfectly content in his life. Not happy. Shane ends up being scattered into the Pacific Ocean in the same spot that Kathy was. It worked once. Why not a second time? The girls woke up the next morning and their brother slash cousin was gone. Shelly assured the girls that they would find him. They always found him. Every time he ran away, Shelly hunted him down and found him and brought him home. Later, Shelly came to the girls and she had this birdhouse that Shane had built over the summer prior. Shelly said she found it on the table with one note, one note, only for her, and it only said, I love you, Mom. Nikki knew Shane and Shane hated her mother. He would never run away and leave her the only note. If Shane was going to run away, he would leave Nikki a note in a special place that Shelly couldn't find. Nikki knew something was wrong about this, but still she let her mother tell her this tale of where Shane went. A few days later, while Nikki was out back working in the yard, she swears she heard Shane's voice and she goes 
to her mother and she tells her that, you know, Shane's here. I know he's here. I just heard him. And, but Shelly knows. She's like, no, he's not. She's like, mom, I heard him. And Shelly's like, no, it's, it's something else. Well, I don't know. Well, a few weeks later, the girls finally hear what had happened to their brother. According to Shelly, he called and he was at Kodak Island and he had joined a fishing boat crew and was enjoying life in Alaska. Every time the girls asked if they could talk to Shane the next time he called, it would always be dismissed with, you know, you were in school. Oh, you just missed him. You know, he loves you and he misses you like crazy. And this was her response over and over and over again. No matter how many different times the kids tried to catch Shane's phone calls, they always seemed to be just a few moments late. Now with Kathy and Shane gone, Shelly needed a new place to get her sadistic entertainment. And so she turned her attention back to her girls. The pop quizzes that she was doing started coming up again. And randomly she'd be like, Sammy, where's Kathy? Uh, California, Alaska, California, you know, she couldn't get her stuff straight because she's getting way too many dang stories thrown at her. She's a teenager who should be worrying about, you know, passing class and if this boy likes her or not. Instead, her mother's like, where's the dead body? Where'd she go? You know, that's how these girls live their life. When Sammy couldn't remember if it was California or Alaska, Shelly would yell at her that she doesn't ever pay attention, that she never listens to her mother. Shane's in Alaska and Kathy's in California. Can't you do anything right? That's her rebuttal time and time again to this child. And you know, if it had been true, it'd probably been a lot easier to remember where they're at. But seeing as how both of those stories were a lie, Sammy couldn't keep her story straight. She was not meant to be the kind of liar her mother was. It just wasn't in her. Shelly's attention turned back to Nikki and what she could do to make her life a living hell. She started locking Nikki out from the house, not letting her come in. And sometimes she would give Nikki a blanket. Most times she had nothing. She had to sleep outside in the woods, out back, and constantly wonder how she was going to get back into the house eventually. What did she need to do to make her mother happy? to get back in and then when that was not apparent Nikki was close enough to graduation that she began thinking of how she was going to get out from underneath her mother she loved her sisters but she was at the end of her patience she could not take this anymore she could not deal with her mother's vengeful sadistic games anymore and she started looking for a way out Sometimes Shelly would break the continuous lockout and invite Nikki back inside for some dinner in a warm bed. But, you know, Shelly flipped on a dime. And so it could just be one moment where Nikki blinked unevenly between two eyes and it pissed Shelly off. And so she would banish her daughter back outside. And as I looked at this case, and the more I dig into it, the more that not only do you see psychopathic tendencies coming from Shelley, but you almost see a bipolar rage that happens where Shelley doesn't really experience the manic lows of bipolar disorder. She's experiencing these 
levels of normalness. And then with no warning, she flies off the handle and she's gone from zero to 60 in two, you know, 0.2 seconds. And her family is on constant pins and needles wondering what will set her off again and what is it that she will do to them this time. And that's not how a person should be, but that's how Shelly was. And unfortunately, instead of trying to get through to Shelly and have her go and see somebody, they, well, they, let me rephrase this, Dave let her to continue acting like this as he turned his, you know, turned a blind eye. He didn't, you know, if he didn't have to deal with Shelly, it was a good day. So, she want to act like a crazy person, go for it. Nobody sought out the help for Shelly that she needed, but Shelly then again would not let anybody help either because she saw nothing wrong with her. There was nothing wrong with her behavior. There was nothing wrong with her tendencies to fly into these aggressive moments of rage where she's physically harming people. She doesn't see anything wrong with that. But the more you dig into this, the more you have to look at the psychological point and you wonder what else is there? Because there's no way this fits into one definition. Yes, she's a psychopath. There's no doubt in that. I mean, we we went over that last week. No doubt she's a psychopath. But then you have these almost bipolar mood swings. So is there a combination of one and two or a combination of three or God only knows? I don't know. And as far as I know, she's never submitted to any psychological testing, which as long as she does not become a danger to herself or the inmates, she does not have to undergo inside of the penitentiary, from what I'm understanding. And this is what makes this case so enthralling. We, we want to know. There's got to be an explanation as to why somebody would act like this. This is not normal. You know, and I think that's what's what's wrong with all of us true crime nerds is we want to try to get inside of somebody's psyche and be like, what makes you tick? We're all, you know, amateur psychologists. I don't know. Anyways, one time, poor crazy Shelly, should probably start calling her crazy. No, I want to see on her good side. I'm good. Anyways, Shelly. Goes after her her oldest daughter one time after one of these lockout periods had gone on a break. And she chases Nikki with a knife. Nikki is working outside in her underwear and her crazy ass mother comes wielding a knife and is pissed off. And Nikki in her true fashion takes off running. And she runs into... Or goes towards the woods out back. But Shelly catches her. And she ends up slicing Nikki on the leg. And this slice is big enough and deep enough that it definitely needs stitches. In the end, Nikki gets away from her mother. And she chooses in her state of only in her underwear. She's bleeding. She has this gash that needs medical attention. And all of that going on. Nikki still feels like she is safer staying in the woods overnight. 
The next day, Shelly doesn't ask how Nikki is. She doesn't say anything speaking of the incident that had occurred the day before injuring her daughter. She says nothing. Nikki is back to the way of thinking that her only way out from underneath her mother is by her dying. And even though she thought her cousin had finally succeeded in running away, you know, despite the fact that she had not got to talk to Shane or had not found a note from Shane that was addressed directly to her, she still believed that Shane got out, at least for the time being. So one day, Sammy walks up on Nikki. Nikki's sitting down on the ground and she's laughing and crying. Nikki had tried to hang herself with some twine that she had found, but it snapped. And she told her sister when asked what's wrong that she couldn't even kill herself right. She's almost there, you guys. I mean, she's almost out of high school. She's almost there, but her mother's person, her mother's psyche just drives her to the point where she's, she finds a breaking point. And unfortunately, at her young age, finding a way out is more difficult than choosing the, or the obvious. Sammy would also go on later in life and try to kill herself by eating some red berries out from a bush in the woods. She didn't die. She ended up with like a week-long battle with digestive issues, but death didn't save her either. Shelly's favorite thing to do was turn Sammy against Nikki because, according to Shelly, Nikki was a bad influence. She didn't love Sammy, and all she wanted to do was tear the family apart. Whatever happened that caused Shelly to hate her eldest daughter, we'll never know. She's always been the one. Shelly always turns to Nikki when it comes, well, not always. I mean, when Shane was there, she turned to Shane and Nikki. They were her favorite duo for corporal punishment. But what happened that made Shelly target her oldest daughter? We'll never know. Other than the fact that maybe there was some attention given when Nikki was first born that Shelly thought that she should have got because, you know, she just birthed the baby. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know. Whatever it is, though. Nikki was her target, her first target, and it was her favorite target. She loved to go back and practice with that target every time she could. In 1993, Nikki finally graduates from high school, and her two main focuses become a college degree and getting the hell away from her mother. Her hatred had brewed and steeped for so long for her mother, and now she was finally old enough to do something about it. Through some financial assistance, Nikki enrolled in a community college and she started her degree path in criminal justice. Slowly, Shelly started to take away the new clothes that she got to start college in. Then she no longer had a room in the no-tech house. She was being evicted from her bedroom and she was made to sleep in the living room floor. Finally, Shelly cut Nikki off completely. There was no more rides to school. There was no more money and no family would help her out. Nikki started seeing the pattern that Kathy had took. She was walking those same steps. She was being pushed by her parents and pushed and pushed some more 
until she cried. She couldn't get a job, she had no clothes, she had no ride, and her showers consisted of a garden hose outside. Her life was mirroring one she knew the ending to, and Nikki was terrified. Determined not to go out like Kathy, Nikki began fighting back. When Shelly would tell her that she needed to go get a job, she's like, I can't get a job, I have no clothes and I have no car, Mom. And Shelly would go, well, you should have told me you needed a car. I had no idea that was your problem. Yes, you did, Shelly. Come on, really? The next time Nikki was tackled to the ground by her mother, she fought back. And this shocked the hell out of Shelly. No one fought her back. This time, Nikki did something a little different. She told her mother to fuck off. This earned Nikki some new news. Sammy no longer wanted her sister there, and Shelly was sending her to her aunt's house. For Nikki, best possible outcome. When she got up to her Aunt Trisha's house, she told her what was going on back at home. And the 10 days she was supposed to spend turned into weeks and months. She helped her aunt with work that she could, cleaning up around the house, doing dishes, you know, things like that. Things that a child should feel not obligated, but should feel like they need to help with if they are not working. You know what I'm saying? When you were a teenager, we all were made to do a chore we didn't like. But you did it because, you know, you you were part of the family. You had to help the family out as far as when it came to your living conditions. No one person should have to do it all. And Nikki knew that. But where Nikki came from, there was a lot of screaming and cussing and hitting involved in the fact that they did all the chores. While Shelly did nothing but stuff candy wrappers into their couch. How did they not have ants? Sorry. Alright, back on topic. <laughs> Sammy understood why Nikki left. She got it. She knew that the only way you could survive is if you got away from their mother. She knew that. She didn't feel like Nikki was some bad seed. She didn't. She still loved her sister. She still wanted her to do better for herself. So the lies coming out of Shelly saying that, that Sammy didn't want Nikki there was complete and utter bullshit. In reality, Sammy knew. Tori, she was on a different spectrum because she's a lot younger. And she felt like Nikki abandoned them. How could she leave them behind? How could she let their mother do this to them? That's how Tori thought. But again, she's little. I mean, Nikki was almost a teenager when Tori was, when Shelly announced she was pregnant with Tori. So she is very much a concrete thinker in this moment. In the end, she still feels abandoned and she has a hard time getting past this. Tori once wrote a note saying that she wished Nikki would come home. Wherever she went, she suspected it was because of her mother being so cruel to her. She ended up laying this letter on her windowsill, and Shelly found it. Shelly woke her up the next morning by punching her and slapping her in the face. Shelly did not like getting called out for her physical violence or her emotional abuse, and she was going to be damned if her youngest was going to be one to call her out on that. She could not believe that her youngest thought she was so mean that she would drive Nikki away. 
How dare Tori even think something like that? Shelly tells Sammy and Tori constantly that Nikki does not love them. And she is no good for them. She is a bad person in Shelly's eyes. In reality, the only reason I think she's bad is because Shelly has the whole world backwards. Where we go out and, you know, we help our community or we volunteer. That, to us, is a good person. But in Shelly's eyes, you're doing bad. You're not, why, why won't you do those things for her? She has the whole world flipped upside down and backward. Good means evil. Evil means good. And Shelly, well, she was doing the work of the Lord and trying to redirect those she perceived as bad people. In reality, the bad people were the people that she couldn't control. Eventually, Nikki's stay in Canada was over. She had to go home. Her Aunt Trish was no longer a match for Shelly in her tirades of rage and fury. And so Nikki was sent back to Washington. However, according to Shelly, she was still not fit enough to come home. She was a horrible role model for Sammy and Tori. And as long as Sammy and Tori were young enough to be under their mother's thumb, well, can't have Nikki and all her free thinking back in the house. So what happens? Nikki gets a job and her and Dave move into a condo closer to both of their work locations. And that's where they live. Monday through Friday. On the weekends, they would go home and Shelly would evaluate Nikki to see if she was fit to come home yet. And basically, the conversation was, do you think you're ready to come home? And Nikki would go, well, I don't know. Do you think I'm ready to come home? And Shelly didn't like the back talk or the sarcasm, so no, she wasn't fit to come back home. Eventually, Nikki and Dave could not have Bored to live in the condo and they moved out and into a tent and from there they would get their food from a food bank that is perceived as a better living situation than living with with Shelly living in a tent with a man who is not her father she does know him as dad but she you know she knows Danny as being her real father but still living in a tent with her father Eating food that's given to them from a food bank is still a better living condition than living with their mother. Nikki ends up landing a job at the local Baskin Robbins and then starts her second job cleaning motel rooms. And it's at her second job that Nikki lands a way out. Her boss gives her the use of a single wide trailer. Now, this isn't the Ritz Carlton. She's not living in some fantabulous home it is a single wide and so in the end the only thing it does offer her is the only thing that Nikki wants and that's freedom and she had that now back at home Sammy is in her senior year and she is approaching life with this fuck it all attitude and I say it like that because I don't mean to offend you with it but that's the only way I can think of saying it or screw it I guess we could do a screw it all attitude. And so she, you know, when her teachers are like, hey, you're late with your homework. She's like, my mom threw it away. And they're like, you're late to class. Well, my mom made me sleep outside and only let me in this morning to get dressed. You know, 
you're gonna be charged for missing library books and she's like yeah that's fine my mom burned them anyways you know these are comments that sammy is doing because she's done caring she's done living this life nikki got out shane got out kathy is gone what else is there to live for at her mother's house so let's just ah, screw it tell everybody the truth until a counselor confronts her about these comments. The school's ready to step in. They're ready to do something. They're ready to save her from Shelly. And Sammy backs down. She tells them, it was just a joke. I'm just kidding. It's not true. And it's in that moment that you can't help but think of the Stockholm Syndrome. You know, where they've become captive so long, but that they can't help but develop a relationship and in this case that's her mother you want your mother to love you you thrive on that as a child and sammy and nikki and tori and shane that not they're no different they want their mother's praises but shelly's not giving it she don't care so when nikki decides screw it let's just see where how far this truth thing gets me she ends up getting scared and backing down and i can't hate her and i can't that's not even the word i should use i don't hate her not at all i don't blame her because you want that relationship you want to have that closeness with your mother as a girl that's what you want you want to be able to go to your mother and talk about all the things that are going on at school you know, this boy likes me. These girls are being mean to me. They won't be my friend anymore. You know, that's not what Sammy has. That's why Nikki didn't have it. Tori doesn't have it. And Shelly could have had it with her stepmother, Laura, but she didn't want it. And so, you know, you can't blame her. Because that unknown is scary. At least at Shelly's, she knows what could happen. Dave, at this point, is so far under Shelly's control, he can't even recall seeing her abuse the children. It's happening, but he's so deep emotionally with Shelly, he can't remember it. When he goes to recount his version of the things that happened during those years prior to them getting caught, you know, it's always... The kids were being bad. The kids were being, you know, disrespectful. Whatever the case is, he validated that abuse. You can't validate that abuse with Kathy. She's a grown adult. If she wants to tell Shelly to, you know, go out back and eat grass with the cows, that's her right as a person to have that opinion. But she also had the choice to leave and she chose to stay. That's what psychological torture does to one you you don't see a way out you know you want it but there's this huge blinder on and you can't see it and dave and nikki and sammy and tori and kathy and shane they all have that blinder until nikki one day realized she could take it off and she got out dave yeah, if I work far enough away from home, I don't have to worry about it. There was his. That's his way out. Sammy and Tori, 
They don't have that luxury. They have to deal with her. The last few months of Sammy's senior year, she saw that glimmer of hope and she started to plan her escape. That freedom that her sister Nikki had looked glorious and she wanted a piece of it. Sammy did tell Tori this little tidbit of information. She said, if for some reason I don't come home that at night, there's going to be a note just for you and in, not, and in a predetermined location. And then Sammy started getting with her friends and her boyfriend. And here's the plan. Sammy was going to get a phone call saying that her friend Lauren needed help and that she would need to leave the home. And Sammy would then hide out at Lauren's before jumping over to her boyfriend's house and then continuing to hop like that so her mother couldn't find her. Now, while nobody was home, Lauren was going to break into the no-tech home and take everything of Sammy's that she could. Thus comes right before graduation. Sammy goes downstairs and she tells her mother that Lauren ran out of gas and she needed to go pick her up. And Shelly's like, yeah, fine, whatever, go. Next, Sammy showed up at Lauren's house. And she was going to stay the night there. And then the next night, she was going to her boyfriend's house. And she was going to stay there. She knew her mother was going to start looking high and low for her once she didn't come home that first night. And she was right. The thought of getting caught by Shelly made Sammy physically ill. And it took everything she had to continue on with her plan. Because the hold her mother still had on her was so strong. Sammy ends up writing her this note that I'm going to share with y'all and this is this pulls at your heartstrings because you can hear the little girl that wants her mother but knows that her mother is the worst thing for her I've thought of all the reasons why I can't leave you because I love you so much and because I love you so much I wouldn't want to hurt you I started thinking about hurt in life and how much hurt I cause. So then I thought it would be good for me to leave. Things would be quieter. Things got quieter when Nikki left. And with me gone, everything would be okay. It will be okay. If this is how it was meant to be, then this is how it was meant to be. I just wish you understood. But I know you never will. Sammy had stayed in contact with Nikki, and because of their conversations, Nikki tells Sammy to call their Nana Laura, and Sammy does just that. With Dave out on the lookout for Sammy, and now she knows that her mother has called and filed a report saying that Sammy's car had been stolen, she was at the end of the road as far as her plan went. So she called up her Nana Laura. And Laura said that she could come there to Bellingham. She could stay with Laura and she would protect her. So Barb, the mother of Sammy's boyfriend, offered to take Sammy to Bellingham because there was no other way she was getting there. Barb never really thought much of Shelly. After Shelly had called her awkwardly in the middle of the night, demanding to know how much her and her husband made. Why? Who does that? 
But thanks to that little phone call, Barb had no qualms about driving Sammy all the way to Bellingham. And in the summer of 1997, Sammy enjoyed one of the happiest times in her life. Nikki was out of her mother's house and living on her own, but still Shelly was managing to torture her. A brick ended up through the window of the ice cream shop, and then it was followed with a phone call that said Nikki was behind it. Then a sheriff showed up at the trailer that she was staying at, saying that her mother was worried about her and she really needed to call home. Nikki had no plans to call home, even though she did tell the sheriff she would. Eventually, Nikki and Sammy were reunited, and the girls could not believe how well the other one looked. Soon, Nikki took a job working with her Nana Laura, and not long after that, phone calls started coming into the nursing home, saying that Nikki was mean to the patients. When Nikki would leave at night after her shift, Dave would either be sitting in the parking lot in his truck or standing in the bushes. Nikki constantly feared that her father was going to kidnap her. He never did, and he never spoke to her. He never tried to take her, but that fear was always in the back of Nikki's mind because she didn't know how far her mother would go. She knew how far her mother could go, but she didn't know how far she was willing to go in this moment. Dave ended up finding his wayward middle daughter in the home of his mother-in-law, and he told her that she needed to go home. Her mother was worried sick about her, and Sammy tells her father what she knows. She tells him that she knows Kathy is dead. She tells him that no one has cancer that long. She knows her mother does not have cancer. Sammy tries to open Dave's eyes to what Shelley is doing. And the two cried and bonded over what they knew. And eventually Sammy agreed to come home. But she had one ultimatum. Shelly was to fix the college application that she sabotaged for Sammy. And if Shelly would get her enrolled in college, she would come back home. Sammy then called her mother and told her her conditions. She had a, she had a slew of excuses as to why, you know, that, that Sammy didn't get in. You know, they don't have the money for college. You know, she didn't qualify for the financial aid, whatever. But Sammy didn't care. She told her mother that she knew that she, that Shelly, had sabotaged Sammy's chance at going to college. And she was either going to fix it and Sammy would move home, or she wasn't, and then Sammy would stay exactly where she was. Those were the options. Out there on a silver platter, for Shelly spelled out for her. and she had no choice to but to contend to what her daughter wanted. When Sammy comes back home, her mother <laughs> Okay, so I'm not laughing. We need to go back over episode one and and point this out. I'm not laughing because of Shelly's evilness. I'm laughing at her stupidness because <laughs> I can't help it. When Sammy comes back home, 
Shelly opens the door. She's got her white makeup on all over her face. Her eyebrows are gone and she's cut her hair in certain spots to emulate the side effects of chemotherapy. <laughs> this is why I laughed. Seriously? Come on. <laughs> I, I can picture her looking like an engaged doll, you know, the like stark white makeup. And they don't have eyebrows, but only they don't chop their hair off. But still, you know, that's what I'm picturing. <laughs> They're opening the door looking like she's such a lunatic. <sighs> Sammy finally decides she's standing her ground with her mother. And she tells Shelly, you don't have cancer and you murdered Kathy. It's time to get your shit together. I'm done. Shelly said that she didn't do anything. Kathy choked on her own vomit. And Sammy made sure she understood the only reason she choked on her own vomit was because she was so weak from all of the torture that Shelly had dished out. Again, Shelly didn't have much to say, but she did say one of those rare words we hear out of her. Sorry. Shelly claimed that things got out of control and she couldn't control herself once she had met that threshold. In the end, Sammy enrolled in college, and Shelly went back to acting like she didn't do anything wrong, and she didn't admit to anything. Sammy was crazy. At this point, the no-tech finances are obliterated. Shelly, she owed the repairman. She had the phone company calling, and they were threatening to disconnect their phone line. The water department was out to turn off their water. She had pink slip after pink slip after pink slip, and she was to the point that she could no longer put any of it off. Each time she tried to push the payments back further and further, it always came down to her life spiraling out of control. Dave had a heart attack, and he couldn't work, so they weren't getting paid anything. And in reality, he's sleeping in a tent, working horrendous hours of overtime and eating out of the food bank food that he would get just so Shelly could sit on her fat ass and not do anything. Shelly ends up getting a traffic violation and she writes this to the courts in her defense of why she cannot pay for the, the pay for the traffic violation. She says, this has been a hard year for me. My daughter has cancer. I need to take her in for treatment in Olympia twice a week. I left my job to be with her. My daughter is my everything. She depends on me. I'm not a criminal. Apparently, in the no-tech home, cancer has become a very contagious thing because Shelly had it, and now one of her daughters have it. Which one? I don't know. Because none of them mean the world to her. The only true words that come out of that whole entire letter were daughter and the word and. I I scoured that and I was like, those are the only ones I can see that possibly would be truthful. So, daughter and the word and. In the end, Shelly was granted a hardship and she got out of the violation. Somehow, Shelly had managed to get loans out behind Dave's back. Dave was not there for these loans that she took out. 
and they totaled $36,000. Now, in the late 1990s, $36,000 is a lot of money. Shelly has managed to take these out regardless of her credit, regardless of their payment history, regardless of their annual income. It didn't matter. Shelly sweet-talked her way into loan after loan after loan. She was even able to sweet-talk her way into withdrawing money out of Nikki's account without Nikki being there. This is the good old boy system, apparently, up in Raymond, Washington. They knew Shelly. They knew Shelly was the mother of Nikki. Two and two equals four for them. I don't know how this happened, but Shelly is your ultimate liar, so there's only, God only knows what she said to get her way. I don't know. One day, Sammy calls her mother and tells her her social security number does not work. Shelly's response was, keep changing the last number till you find one that works. What? <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, I can't, can't even. Sammy couldn't bring herself to commit that kind of fraud, and so she ended up dropping it. Even though Shelly told her that she was more than free to use Tori's social security number, at the moment, it was still clear. Later, Sammy would try to get an apartment on her own, and due to her credit history, which was not established by her, but instead Shelly, she was deemed unfit to be a ideal renter and was denied the application, thanks to her mom. With Sammy being out of the house most of the time due to college classes, Dave's still gone working long hours, and Nikki has found freedom, Shelly has nobody at home to torture but Tori. Poor Tori, who was looked after by her older siblings, was now left alone to fight her own battle. Was Shelly's vengefulness turned to Tori? Tori finally gets to see exactly what it looks like to be on the receiving end of the sadistic torture. At this point, Tori's in about middle school and for most of her life, she's managed to escape her mother's wrath due to the attention that that Kathy, Shane, Nikki, Dave, and Sammy had. But now it's just her and her mother and Dave is barely home. And Sammy and Nikki have started calling their mother out on her bullshit. Tori is left to deal with it all. Soon Tori's homework starts going missing. And when Tori goes to Shelly, Shelly tells her, well, you misplaced it. Tori has very little time with her father As he works Monday through Friday out of town, commutes home, then when he gets home, his time is spent with with Shelly, and generally, it leads to a screaming match between the two. Divorce, the word divorce is being welded like it's some sword, and it's Shelly's way to keep control. Dave loved Shelly. He wanted their marriage to be normal. He would quickly fall back in line whenever Shelly would say, I should just divorce your ass. And that would be the end of it. Shelly would be the boy 
who cried wolf. Only she cries divorce every time she doesn't get her way. During the night is generally during the night is generally when Shelley likes to attack. Tori's covers are ripped away from her, and Shelley gets into her face and begins asking if Tori's ever thought of killing herself. She says no, but the awkwardness of that conversation leaves Tori awake all night in fear that possibly her mother was planning to kill her. One of Tori's classmates' parents start to question Shelly about the bruises and injuries that are starting to show up on Tori. Shirley, <clears throat> Shelly responds like Tori is a clumsy child. But in the end, when they got home that day, she beats the crap out of Tori. She uses one of Dave's fishing poles and she ends up hitting Tori so hard that it snaps in half. So if any of you have ever picked up a fishing pole or been fishing, in order to get that kind of break, there has to be quite a lot of force on the other end of it because they are pretty flexible. They're made that way so that you can wrangle with the fish as you reel them in but for Shelly that was nothing she could snap one on somebody's backside like it was nothing when Tori starts to go through puberty Shelly starts doing something extremely strange she calls Tori down once a month demands to see how she is progressing she makes Tori take her top off Sometimes she is made to remove her bottoms as well. And if Tori refuses her mother's demands, then she is met with, do you think I'm perverted or something? Well, Tori, I'll answer for you, honey. Yes, Shelly, you are perverted. Your fascination with the nude is borderline pedophilia. Now, let's, we're not borderline nothing. You are a pedophile. You may not have ever touched them, but their constant need to be naked during your abuse is pedophile through and through. The worst part came when during one of Shelley's evaluations of how Tori was coming along in puberty, she forces Tori to cut away a lock of her pubic hair so that she could put it in her baby book. And Tori is mortified. She doesn't want to do it. She she's crying and she's saying that, you know, she's telling Shelley, I don't want to do this. It's weird. And Shelley meets those comments with well Nikki and Sammy did it eventually Tori takes the scissors she goes into the bathroom and she snips away a lock of her pubic hair returning to her mother giving her the scissors and then trying to give her the lock of pubic hair when Shelly is disgusted 
she's like, I can't believe you did it. I just wanted to see if I could make you go in there and do that. I don't want to touch that. That's disgusting. And Tori's left there to stand in complete shock. Why would her mother talk her into doing something so personal out of sheer enjoyment to see if she would do it? But she did. Tori would count the minutes until Sammy would come home on the weekends from college. Sammy stayed true to her work. She told her mother that if she would get her into college, that she would come back home. So on the weekend, Sammy came home from school, and Tori couldn't wait. She eventually gave up on ever seeing Nikki again, and started to believe that Nikki was exactly what her mother said she was. The only connection between all three sisters was Sammy. Sammy saw Nikki... And Sammy saw Tori, but Nikki and Tori did not see each other just yet. Most of the times, Tori would have to survive by eating little things out of the deep freezer in the pole house, and she would take little pancakes, and she would eat them, and then she would hide the, the wrapper, and then she would kind of move things around to make it look like nothing was missing. She was very smart. She took very little so that there was no quick depletion of resources inside of the freezer. But nevertheless, Shelly caught on and she cleared out the entire deep freezer and threw every bit of the food away. Tori's punishments were far different than her sister's. She never seemed to endure the same punishment twice. The only consistency that was there with her punishments was to be naked. One particular night, Tori was awakened much like the other nights, her covers quickly removed from her, and Shelly is screaming at the top of her lungs. However, this time, Shelly is standing there in a robe, untied, with her breast hanging out. She forces Tori out of bed and forces her to undress, then they proceed to go downstairs, and Shelly sits on the couch while Tori does jumping jacks in the middle of the living room. Shelly berates and belittles her youngest daughter during this activity. And Tori, she knows something just isn't right. There's something seriously wrong with her mother as she stands there and has to exert physical activity completely naked and her mother is virtually naked from the way down she can see her chest and I'm baffled I'm baffled because what is the need other than the fact that it strips away humility what is the need to have these kids naked for their punishment I can't get past this. That part alone, that part alone should have been enough to put Shelly away for a very long time. Those poor girls endured so much humiliation at the hands of their mothers because of the way their bodies developed. Something they had virtually no control over. 
but yet they were ridiculed by their mother because of the way they were progressing in life. This part eats at me more than more than most other parts. This is the part that I have a hard time with. Something is wrong if you're constantly making your children remove their clothing. Something's wrong with you. And I don't care what you say. I don't care whether or not you ever physically put your hands on them in a sexual matter. The fact that you had them undress in the nude to do activities that were outside of the normal bathing is... Being a sexual predator to a child. I don't know. Y'all may disagree with me, but this is the one where I just, I can't, I can't get past this. I can't get past the fact that her constant need to have her children naked, to see how they progress through puberty. That's not something we do. As a mother and as a person who had a mother I was not checked regularly to see how my body formed throughout my puberty. I don't look at my children and go, how's your body going through puberty? Because it's not something you do. But for Shelly, of course it is. Of course it is. Since Shelly's cancer gig was up, she had to turn to something else to gain empathy from her daughter, Sammy. Because Sammy, I don't want to say she was a gullible one, but she was the one that would easily take Shelly at face value. And so cancer was gone. It was out the window. So she started claiming that she had multiple different illnesses. One being lupus. Lupus is a autoimmune disorder. Shelly didn't have it. She also claimed that she had a massive ovarian cyst that required surgery. Again, there was never a surgery to remove. There was never a surgery to remove this cyst. Dave had at this point, Dave and his unwillingness to live through her lies kept him from going back home to Raymond for almost an entire year. Tori went almost an entire year with her dad and her mother married, but never seeing her father because he didn't want to come home and deal with his wife. He simply sent his paychecks home since that's all she really wanted from him. And eventually, a phone call would happen that would convince him to come home. His boss loans him a car, and he drives the five-hour commute home one weekend. Everything always seemed like it was going good at home until the moment he drove out of sight from, from the house and back to work. And then Shirley would turn into the evil bitch that she was. Eventually, Shelly got off of her ass, sorry I had to say it that way, and got her job. She was hired as a caseworker for the Olympic Area Agency. Seriously. This is where she met Ron Woodworth. She met Ron while working on a case of an elderly woman in need of a home, 
and that she would receive one through the Habitat for Humanity Foundation. Ron helped this elderly woman find homes for her 80 cats. Shelly talked to Sammy consistently about her friend Ron. And we can't help but think that the past is repeating itself. Ron was a large man. His belly hung over his belt. He kept his hair long and in a ponytail, but it was very thin on top. He wore earrings and jewelry, and he was very vain about his appearance. Thinking his current style was very fitting of him, Ron hit a rough season in life. He had relocated to the area with his partner, Gary, but after Ron lost his father, his relationship with Gary went downhill. He was unable to hold down a job or even carrying on a conversation without forgetting his train of thought. And Gary got to a point where he just couldn't take living with Ron anymore. This was the moment the man he fell in love with. Ron was no longer the man Gary fell in love with. So Gary walked away from the relationship and this caused even further discord in Ron's life. Ron made vague thoughts about living life past this point anymore, but mentioning, but never really mentioning the word suicide. He, he was at a point where he couldn't see the upside in life, but it wasn't to the point just yet that he wanted to use the word suicide because he wasn't really sure if he was ready to die. And it's during this time that Ron becomes very close with Shelley. So much so that Tori begins to visit Ron at his trailer after school most days. Tori develops a relationship with Ron similar to the one that Sammy had with Kathy. Ron is quick and sarcastic with his remarks, but nonetheless, Tori calls him Uncle Ron. With this dark season in Ron's life, he was offered to move from the home he shared with Gary for so long to live with his friend Sandra, but declined moving in with Sandra, saying he was expected to move into his very good friend Shelly and Dave Notek's home soon. Sadly, this would be Ron's last move in life. Just before his move in with the Notex, his friend Sandra showed up to see Ron and his mother. <clears throat> they were to hire a lawyer so they would not lose the mobile home. And he had ended up giving $1,000 to Shelley to hire the attorney. Shelley showed up during the visit with Sandra, marking her territory as ever territorial that she was. She basically was like Ron's mind. My claws are firmly dug into his psyche. And she was already to the point where she had him hook, line, and sinker. This poor man could not see the dark cloud coming his way that was Shelley Notek. With Ron at rock bottom, the loss of his partner, his relationship with his mother was becoming estranged. 
And worst of all, he had lost all of his cats. But fear not. Shelly told Tori Ron was moving in and she was going to help him get back on his feet. Tori didn't know that was the same line Shelly told Dave when Kathy moved into the Craftsman farmhouse. But here we are, and the past is repeating itself. Ron was welcomed in with a big party from Shelly. He got Sammy's old room, and in his room he had a bed and a dresser and a nightstand with a lamp, the basic necessity one would need in their bedroom. Dave knew nothing of what was going on back home. He didn't know Ron was moving in. He had no idea. On one of his little visits home, he was introduced to Ron. Shelley said, quote, this is my friend Ron. He's gay. End quote. Now back then, unfortunately, being gay and living that lifestyle was not as welcome as it is now. But it was almost as if Shelley telling Dave that he was gay meant that he was the perfect predator for her or she was the perfect predator for him. I don't know. I don't know why she had to introduce him as being gay. I can't figure out. But I do know that she used the fact that Ron was gay and had lived in a relationship with a man against him when tearing him down psychologically. At this point, Dave, he couldn't care. He didn't give two shits who was moving into this house. He simply had to make it to the point where Tori was grown and he was out. He was done. He was going to be free. He had decided that as soon as Tori graduated high school, he was divorcing Shelly and getting away from her vicious, hateful, lying, gold-digging self. Because let's face it, that's what she was. She just wasn't smart enough to land a true sugar daddy, I guess. <clears throat> when Sammy caught the news that somebody had moved in, her immediate thought was, oh shit. Kathy's fate was... Bright in her mind. She knew what her mother was capable of doing. And she was very hopeful that history would not repeat itself. She thought Ron could hold his own against Shelley because he wasn't Kathy. She thought with Ron being a man, he would not allow Kathy to do, or he would not allow Shelley to do the things she did to Kathy. That's where Sammy sat. And at first, everyone noticed how Ron and Shelly were very lovey-dovey. And Ron doted on Shelly. Again, Kathy did the same thing. When Ron would do what Shelly told him to, he always responded with, Yes, Shelly dear. This made Sammy cringe every time he said it. Yes, Shelly dear. No matter what she put down on his plate at dinner, he would respond, look so good, Shelly, dear. And in the week, Shelly angered, and in, in a few short weeks, 
Shelly began to get angry with Ron over everything. He would roll his eyes at hers, and she was quick to snap. I don't appreciate that at all. And he would immediate he would immediately apologize. And then his apology would be shot down because he was using a very sadistic and disrespectful tone. It wouldn't take long before Shelley started using some of the meanest words she could find. Quote, I don't want a useless fag like you talking to me. You disgust me, Ron. Get out of my sight and stay away from my little girl. She accused Ron multiple times on no uncertain terms of being a pervert due to his sexual orientation. Notice, <clears throat> Tori did start to notice that things kind of got a little easier around the house after Ron moved in. And it took Tori a minute to realize that, that Shelly had a new target. She had a new source of entertainment. Ron was beginning to be physically beaten by Shelly. She would lay hands on him. And eventually, she forced him to sever all ties he had with any family and friends. Ron, he was no longer eating what Shelly made for dinner. So Shelly and Tori would have one thing and he was fed toast and water twice a day. And then he was to chase it all with a handful of pills. Shelly's complete and utter control relied on the pill combination that she would feed her victims. It, she was very I can't even think of the word. She was very she knew that she had to she had to have the perfect combination. One that wouldn't be so powerful that they, they just couldn't, they were just numb to everything. She still needed them to be awake, be able to do the dirty chores she didn't want to do. She still needed to be able to fire off her insulting remarks without any interruption. So her combinations needed to be correct. And with Ron, she got it down fairly quickly. Eventually, Ron was evicted from his room upstairs. He was left with nothing. So, instead, he was forced to sleep on the floor in the computer room. Like Shane and Kathy, Ron was handed a honeydew list that never shrank. Shelly made things up to keep him working. But her famous and most favorite punishment came shortly after the eviction from his bedroom. He needed permission to use the restroom. Ron needed the restroom? Answer is no. But outside, one would work. She would say, you need to do your business outside. I don't want a fag using my bathroom. Please note at this point, I know I've used that term a couple of times. I am directly quoting Shelly and her remarks to Ron. It those words do not stand for 
my thought on the whole issue of being gay at all. Um, if you're happy, I'm happy. That's what, that's all I care. So don't let those demeaning remarks reflect me as a person because it is simply a quote from Shelly. And in order to really understand how she gained control over Ron, you could not let those quotes go. Because during the time frame that this happened, the world was still learning to accept people in same-sex marriages. And Ron, unfortunately, found him person who victimized him based off of his orientation. At night, when Ron needed to use the restroom, he found a Windex bottle and he would use the restroom in there. And then he would hide it and he worked very hard at hiding it every single day. At one point, Tori catches sight of this bottle and she couldn't help but question why he would do that, knowing it would piss off her mom. And she had a little bit of crass, but she wasn't getting on to Ron. It was almost like, how could you be so stupid to break one of mom's rules and not cover up for yourself? So Tori began to show Ron how not to get caught. Because she, herself, she used a, she used the restroom in a bottle at night when she was not allowed to go to the bathroom and then she would pour it out the window in the morning her only advice to ron was don't get caught tori loved ron and she did not want to see him abused at one point shelly brings kathy back up while ron is living in the home now, when Kathy was around, Tori was almost too young to remember what had happened to her. She didn't fully understand what had happened. But Shelly and her paranoia started to vamp up again. And she wanted to know if people were asking around about Kathy. But the thing is, Kathy was very rarely let out of the home and when she was, it was simply on the land that surrounded the no-tech house. And not very many people would see her enough to realize that maybe she was missing. At this point, Shelly Shelley is barely managing to maintain her job at the Olympic Area Agency. She's erratic, she's defiant, she's interfering with doctor's orders. And worst of all, she was stealing from the clients. Okay, so you know how, <laughs> you know how certain fads make a comeback after so long? It seems like in Shelly's life, she has the same problem. Because when she first was an adult and first got a job, she was labeled as erratic and defiant and interfering with doctor's orders. And here she is again, some odd years later, repeating it. Her history 
it seems like if, if Shelly knows the story and she knows how to handle the story, it's something that repeats. And here we are with this job and she's, you know, she's all of these things on top of being late, fabricating comp time, listening to messages from listening to messages from home and then deleting them. Her supervisor had a slew of things to say about Shelly during her performance evaluation. She was untrustworthy. She lied. She backpedaled. She compromised the community with the value of her work. But following this poor review of Shelly came a letter of praise from Ron, and it read this. Most employees and bureaucracy quickly learn to do only absolute minimum necessary to keep a job and no more which is nothing less than an absolute shame and clearly not the right thing to do. Miss Notek, however, knows and absolutely believes that a true public servant must be willing to go the extra mile to help clients cope with their many problems. I have heard stories from around Raymond of Miss Notek's willingness to help clients rectify their many problems. Miss Notek helped my mother when a visitor to her neighborhood accidentally struck the skirting of her mobile home with their car. Ron would sign his name and then forge his mother's. But his praises didn't save Shelley, and in March of 2001, she was written up. By May of 2001, Shelley was on probation at work. She tried her usual tactics. Her supervisor didn't like her. Her blood pressure was high. She was going through a divorce. None of her excuses worked to switch the gears. And instead, she moved on to making the work environment hostile. By the end of May, Shelley was working on an exit strategy. And she was called in on the 31st of May. In June, she was cut a severance check, and then she received news that she had also been terminated from the health and safety officer team. She and Ron would drive by as Ron flipped off the lady Shelley said was out for her. Very childish. Ron's friend, Sandra, moved back a little closer to Raymond, about an hour away, and she was wanting to reconnect with her friend, Ron. When she called up Shelly Notek's house, Ron was always conveniently unavailable. Finally, Sandra threatened Shelly with calling the police if she didn't let her talk to Ron. Ron eventually called her back with this story. He said he was hiding from the police. He had a warrant out for his arrest. At the time, Shelly was listening in from the other phone and Ron's friend knew it. And she told her to get off the phone, which was quickly followed with a click, leaving Sandra and Ron alone for a few moments. Quickly, she offered Ron a job and a place to live with her, but he flat out refused. He said Shelly was helping him. Call after call after call was intercepted by Shelly. Finally, Shelly told Sandra that she was stressing Ron out and that she was no good for him saying, quote, stay out of Ron's life. And when his friend dared to stand up to Shelley, the line went dead. Since Shelley had come into Ron's life, it had spiraled even more out of control. 
he had money troubles. He was now in legal trouble and his family, they were tore apart. Shelly never really had complete and total control until she took everything, including friendships and family. Ron and his mother were in a dispute. Ron's mother claimed that the level of care coming from her son was almost on the verge of neglect. And then Shelly sat there stirring the pot. She would say to his family about how awful he was and how could he let his mother live the way she lived. But to Ron, it was, they just want what you have. They're trying to take everything you have. They're trying to control you. This, that, and the other. So Shelly's on both sides of this. And she is working hard to drive that last little wedge between Ron and his family. At this point, Ron was invited to stay with the no text for as long as he needed to to get on his feet. Ron then wrote his mother a goodbye letter and then let his mother know that Shelly would remove all of his belongings from her possession. Shelly finally had Ron where she wanted him. Shelly forced Ron to continuously write hateful words to his family and then have Shelly, quote, deliver them for him. But really, Shelly was taking her entertainment to a whole new level. Shelly doted on Ron's mother when in her presence, saying she was so sorry for everything Ron was doing. And Ron's siblings, they weren't left out. They received letters of hateful words telling them how much he hated his mother and about all of the god-awful things that she put him through. Seemingly, Shelly was their middleman. And Ron's family said that Shelly was kind, she was smart, and she was conscientious. But in reality, she was the one behind Ron forcing him to pen such hateful letters. As Shelly prepared to begin another round of torture to her newest household member, Nikki was with Laura and her eyes were red and puffy and she walked into Nana Laura's office and told her she had something to tell her. And she told her Nana, Mom and Dad killed Kathy. The two broke down and cried, Nikki finally letting everything all out. What had happened starting at the farmhouse and until the point that Nikki was able to get away. At that point, Laura knew what her stepdaughter, Shelly Notek, was capable of. Laura and Nikki ended up calling the sheriff's office, and eventually they talked to Deputy Jim Bergstorm. He instructed Nikki to write down everything she knew, starting from the beginning, and put it into a statement. And here is a little bit from her statement. And it says, long ago, when I think I was about 16, mom did it. Mom was always mad at Kathy. She treated Kathy really mean. She would hit Kathy with steel-toed logging boots of dad's. She would give Kathy all kinds of drugs. And Kathy was acting weird. This one night, us kids all heard of things. So we peeked into Kathy's room and saw dad doing something to Kathy. Because a lot of white foaming stuff was coming out of Kathy's mouth. 
I think mom poisoned her or caused Kathy so much brain damage from hitting her in the head. But Kathy wasn't moving. I think she was dead. We had to run back away from the room because we were not allowed to be downstairs and we didn't want mom to know what we had saw. She would beat us or do bad things to us if she knew what we saw. We smelled something really bad and rubber burning. Dad was outside throwing all of Kathy's stuff on top of tires. He kept the burn pile burning. Nikki faxed over her statement. Nikki faxed over her statement, but it wasn't enough for her new boyfriend. He wanted her to go in and talk to them in person. He almost could not believe what she said to him was true until he looked into her eyes and saw her face and it was written there everywhere. She wore the horrors of her childhood as a mask. On the trip to the police department, Chad's phone rang. It was a number he did not recognize. He answered it and in shock, he could not believe who was on the other end. Shelly. Shelly was planning this family trip to Disneyland. Just the girls, herself, and Dave. Nikki felt, though, this was one of her mother's sixth sense kind of thing, as if she knew what Nikki was doing. Nikki called Sammy next and dropped the bombshell. She felt like Shelly had killed Shane. No one had spoken to him since he left except Shelly. And there's no way Shane would have left a note for their mother. When Nikki made it to Raymond and told the police everything she knew, and I mean everything. But as far as Nikki knew after that, there was nothing done by the officer she spoke with. In actuality, they were trying to get in touch with Sammy to get her version of what happened with Kathy Lorena. But with Sammy still under her mother's reign, she never called them back. On a few occasions, Sammy tried to talk to her mother about what was happening and trying to get Shelly to see that if they told, they wouldn't have this big family secret that would keep them all from living some sort of normal life. But Shelly balked every time and even claimed Kathy committed suicide. Shelly's web of lies was spinning out of control. Her husband pulled away from her because he could no longer live with himself and his role in her house of torture. Nikki finally found her voice and was the lone man trying to stop the monster that was her mother. Everyone knew that Shelly Notek was mean to her core, but her torturing someone to death was a shock. Not so much that Shelly could do it, more to the fact that it was done to a grown woman. As Shelly sets her sights in on a new victim, her daughters are starting to see their mother for what she is. Evil, conniving, torturous, sadistic, psychopath. As Shelly's body count rose, so did the conscience of those around her. Someone had to stop her. Someone needed to come forward and lay down the facts of just what Shelley Notek was capable of. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we dive deeper into this case that managed to stay out of the headlines. 
This is a case unlike many, but as the numbers grow of those who hear of Shelley Nocek, the probability of it happening again once she walks free diminishes greatly. As always, I will leave you with one last line. The greater the power, the more dangerous the abuse. Edmund Burke. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>